And a pleasant good evening, Nets fans, and welcome back, and I mean back, to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, Sam Lovewitz, Jack Hendon, episode 72, and our long national nightmare is over. Baseball is back. Jack, how are we doing? Lockout over, spring training is underway, games starting a couple of days, oh, did not see it coming, honestly. The beginning of the week, the way the negotiations were going, like Wednesday night, because they canceled a couple other games. I was convinced we were going to lose more. But it's funny how things just totally turn around in like a span of like not even 24 hours. Like, you know, these guys by 4, you know, 4 p.m. basically uh, had it all figured out and we were getting it back. And now everyone's just in camp. It's, it's, it's jarring, really, that like we go from being in the doldrums to just Max Scherzer's on a mound in Mets gear and Jacob DeGrom is walking into camp and like Buck Showalter's there with players and like people are getting traded and signed again. There's so much happening at once. It's going to be a very overwhelming couple of weeks just with everything that needs to be taken care of. But I'm I'm excited. I I can't express how excited I am. The baseball's back. I don't think there's words for it. I just, I can't, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm like, this is life being breathed back into my lungs that we have baseball again like uh the 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 random videos and pictures of players walking through uh parking lots and spring training is like that's like one of my favorite things because that signals baseball for me that spring is here that baseball is here we we gotten that last couple of days with uh with jake walking through um Parking lot in, in his blue jeans and Starling Marte taking a golf cart through the complex in his uh, blueberry uniform, uh, all all blue, all Mets blue stuff, and uh, it's just it's it's such a great time of year because every everyone's so filled with hope now. Now the baseball's here. First of all, the, the important part is obviously baseball's here. The second most important part is that the new agreement was not of of too much of a firm uh deal in in favor of the, the owners it was it was a decent to solid compromise yeah. that after all that the players did get some concessions from ownership yeah yeah like mm-hmm. yeah for instance league minimum up to seven hundred thousand, which is going to grow up to seven hundred eighty thousand by the end of excuse me, by the end of this new agreement, um, which is a five-year agreement, as is the case with most CBAs, um, that's a huge win in their part. Um, That's an increase of roughly 100K at the start of the agreement. Yeah, and the players wanted 775,000, and they are going to eventually get that. Um, Yeah, so there's, there's obviously the league minimum, there's the competitive balance tax, which I think we've talked about doesn't totally implicate teams that don't spend um, as much as it does give owners willing to spend a little bit more leeway. They obviously, the big uh, news that's relevant for reasons, I think, specific to us as Mets fans is that there's now another tier, basically, that's essentially designed to punish Steve Cohen because he is on his way to $290 million payroll, which is miles away from what everyone else has spent even teams like the Dodgers and Yankees and Red Sox so so, you know supposedly big market teams are not um you know reaching that that threshold so they have they're going to tax essentially only Cohen because he's the only one who's going to get there 80 percent 
for every dollar that he goes over 290 million. And he is approaching that. He's not there yet. He says he's probably going to go over it. We will talk about uh, what has brought the Mets closer to that briefly. Uh, They're roughly, I believe the math has them roughly $4 million or so underneath. Yeah. With yeah. today's move, this today being Sunday, um, Jack alluded to Adam Ottavino there. We'll talk about Adam Ottavino and about Chris Bassett and about the moves the Mets have made so far. Um, all other parts of it besides the Steve Cohen taxes, it's being so eloquently referred to now. Um, pre-arbitration pool up to $50 million. Um, no agreement on an international draft. They have until late July, July 25th, to come up with a framework for an international draft. Um, and based on that, that will determine whether or not draft direct draft pick compensation returns in some form via the qualifying offer. If there is an international draft, there is no qualifying offer. If there is no draft, the qualifying offer structure stays in place. Right. Um, and, which is like significant. That international draft thing turned out to be the last kind of uh, obstacle to clear um, on getting the CBA done. And they both were kind of like, you know what, let's just figure out the deal now, uh, you know, end the lockout, get baseball going, and we can figure out um, the international draft later. It's not worth really talking about right now. Yeah. And we will, I mean, I'm sure that when we get to that point in July, there will be conversations about it again um, to some effect or another, uh, at least through lawyers, because obviously players will be playing through the year then. It's going to be like harder for them. The union is a lot more divided on um, the relevance and necessity and value of international drafts because players ultimately, especially uh, players in Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, Panama, et cetera, uh, they want to be able to pick their teams. Uh, they lose their bonuses if they aren't able to pick teams because teams don't have, uh, they don't have to fork over that kind of money to win a talented player over. Uh, we've talked at length about, you know, the sort of the behind the scenes of those negotiations, the much less savory details from behind the scenes because these negotiations, negotiations start at like a, a very early age. Um, and it's, it, you know, it, it, it has its faults and its flaws, and hopefully uh, we can move towards a draft so that, that's, that we get past that. But uh, I think the fact that uh, players could still come to an agreement with ownership uh, is, is a good thing. And I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, those next phases as well, just seeing how that goes, because ultimately it's, it's something that the players are going to need to be a lot more prepared to talk about and negotiate. Uh, it was probably the issue that they, they, they were the most, I think, fragmented on where it was easiest to sort of challenge them uh, from a PR perspective. I'm glad it's over for now, but it will be back. So I'm going to, we should all definitely keep an eye out for that. And it's, it's important. Um, other things uh, that come with the CBA, the playoffs are being expanded, but only to 12 teams. Uh, that's, I think, as good as we could have asked for, I think 14, as we've discussed, would have been uh, pretty embarrassing for everyone involved. Uh, let's see, we have, oh, the 45-day window. Uh, no rules are going to be changed this season regarding base sizes, shifts, pitch clocks, et cetera. But if the owners want to implement them, they can now do it in November 
2022, and they would go into effect before the, the, the 2023 season because it's now within a 45 day notice and not a one year's notice. Uh, so that could be significant. Opening day is being moved to April 7th, um, and we're getting all 162 games. Uh, 25 so days away. Yeah, it's, it's, it's on the horizon. It's coming. It's not when it was scheduled to be, but it is going to happen anyway. Everyone's at spring training, as you said. We are, we're back. We're pretty much back. Uh, we are so back. Um, and all of these different points culminated in, in, a, in a new collective bargaining agreement um, that the Players Association voted on in a, in a 12 or um, a 26 in favor, 12 against vote with all eight members of the subcommittee, which is basically those the, who speak for all the players. Yeah, um, that includes Francisco Lindor and Max Scherzer. All eight members of the subcommittee voted against it, and uh, as did the Mets player rep, who used to be Michael Conforto, um, right. but is now Brandon Nimmo, who also voted against it. So every Met that was involved voted against this deal. Wasn't enough, however, to uh, flip the vote in favor of the owners and keep negotiations going. Um, 26 teams voted for this. Yeah. Four teams voted against and the eight subcommittee members voted against. That's where you get your 12 against votes. Yeah. Um, and it was good enough. The owners voted unanimously in favor of it. Players were not unanimous, but they still had uh, the majority. And right. And I would think some of that is strategic too. If the entire subcommittee, the executive subcommittee is voting against it. There's clearly something that, uh, I think comes out of uh, them as a unit voting on something that really doesn't fit their asking price. Because uh, again, this is as soon as this lockout happened and as soon as negotiations started, like this was always going to be a game that the owners were going to win. Um, this is simply a matter of finding the point for players in which they, their losses are limited. Um, this was that point. Uh, so it, it doesn't really, I think, behoove the the executive representatives like Scherzer, Lindor, Andrew Miller. It doesn't uh, benefit them to vote in favor of it, but it still, I think, gets the, it keeps the players out of the fire um, by having the, the actual voting base go in favor of it. So I, I wouldn't think that this was, I know that some people have discussed the idea that like, this is just you know, players on the richest team, like, you know, blocking the little guy, et cetera. This idea that, um, you know, the richest players who represent at the highest level don't want baseball because they're selfish. There's, you know, the, it's all politics. Um, yeah, the, the, I would say. Oh, the, oh, the Mets players were voting against it because they put the Steve Cohen tax there. Yeah. We don't really know why Brandon Nimmo voted against this new CBA. We don't necessarily know why the eight subcommittee members, including two Mets, voted against this CBA. It doesn't really matter at this point. Right. I mean, because we're not in those rooms. We're not the ones who are negotiating in any sort of way. or uh, hearing about the actual minutia of the negotiations, which were apparently even messier than we knew publicly as fans, as was reported by um, so many of these beat reporters and columnists around baseball who were covering the negotiations so so carefully and closely, like Evan Drellick of The Athletic, who was really my go-to source here yeah. throughout. Um, Jesse Rogers did a pretty good job. Even Bob Nightingale was pretty on top of things for the most part. 
Jeff Watson before the NFTs came. Yeah, I Jeff Watson. That was great. That was great, by the way. I think that could have only happened that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other day, and it wouldn't have been as good. That was because um, you get that notification. I don't know what you're what you were up to so during can- that day. Thursday, Thursday is my capstone day for my my uh, the last class I'm taking for my major, which is broadcast journalism. Um, basically, the way the capstone is set up every Thursday, I'm working from 930 to 530. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, got a little frog in my throat, I guess, um, in rotating roles. And at the end of the day, at, at about four o'clock, we put out a newscast, a 30 minute um, real newscast with real news in our in our our area. So Thursdays are generally hectic for me in general, because no matter what my role is on any given Thursday, I'm working under deadline and I'm trying to help, you know, do my part to put a newscast together. But this past Thursday was like the worst one for me because I was producing the whole thing. I was in charge of the whole newscasts and it was stressful and I'm not a producer by trade and it stunk. It was super, super difficult and super stressful, but I was still continuously checking my phone here and there throughout the day keeping updated on the CBA talks when I saw that Jeff Passon tweet about NFTs and that he, I was, I, I didn't even have the mental capacity to think about it and and to really laugh about it. So I'm laughing with you in retrospect. Really lucky for me. I had nothing going on. And when you get that 11 AM notification from Jeff, that basically the players have uh, agreed to one of the options that the owners had presented uh, regarding negotiating the international draft and you realize like okay so they're done with that hurdle they're gonna get very close to a deal today there's gonna be a lot of news and i'm just sitting there on my couch i don't have anything going on and i'm i mean i'm desperately anxiously waiting for something to come from this man and then his account gets hacked and it's like no more news like he's he's you know jeff is gone jeff is no more he's now jeff.f and he's he's trying to sell NFTs. And then there were like other um, like people with monkey pictures, the monkey pictures committee or whatever had a, they hosted a speaker space and were basically like that account is not linked to us. We do not condone the hacking of Jeff Pawson. It was, dude, it was like, it didn't seem real as a fan. We're waiting for baseball to come back. And that happens. Like it's not, you can't really, I think, wrap your head around it unless you're in that so i congratulate you for avoiding that uh i didn't fully avoid it i, just, I did see part of it happening like i saw his tweets uh and then, as he noted himself once he got his account back and once like we were through the news of the day yeah the reporting was done and the deal was signed and the lockout was lifted he was like hey remember when i got hacked on the biggest news day of my life he did get to break the actual uh, baseball is back tweet, which I'm happy for him. That would have been a terrible way to miss out on that. But yeah, it, I, I'm not going to forget that. I'm definitely not. And I think when my grandkids ask me about that lockout and I have to explain the Jeff Pawson NFTs chapter, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. I haven't thought much about how I'm going to do that. So um, <laughs> I think you can. If you need to, you know, just worst case scenario, you could maybe skip that one. Could, but it wouldn't be as entertaining. You know, the book loses a very important, the movie, it would be like, it would be, I'm trying to think of a Batman example. It would be like taking the scene 
uh, where the Batman visits the Riddler in Arkham and taking it out of the, the movie. Like it, 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 again, I mean, we're just, we're just nerds. We're angst ridden nerds, but um, yeah, okay. that's, I mean, that's really the baseball side of it. And then the Mets side of it is that like, they're actually in business. A lot of teams are in business now because the lockout's been lifted. Like a lot of moves have been made, but the Mets. It took a minute. Moves, moves. And it's exciting. It took a minute. We were like, feeling like we were going to get this flood of moves yeah soon as the lockout ended and it took about a day for things to start trickling through and what has trickled through not just on the Mets side we've got um uh let me let me find you say Kikuchi's a Blue Jay on a three-year deal Carlos Rodon a San Francisco Giant on a two-year deal with an opt-out after one Clayton Kershaw back with the Dodgers the Twins traded for Sonny Gray today sent over top draft pick Chase Petty uh terrible like, trade by the way which is terrible a weird trade. weird trade um but i know some people who like chase petty the white Sox have signed joe kelly god bless them for that to a two-year deal joe kelly on two-year deal jake deekman a red Sox, believed to be a red a multi-year deal steve ciszek a national alex colomay a colorado rocky jerry's familia a philadelphia philly i was convinced he would be a met again um which is weird um, that he's going to be pitching against the Mets instead of pitching for the Mets because, you know, he loves playing for the Mets. He's always said he wants to be back with the Mets, wants to be back with the Mets every time he's a free agent. Yeah. And now he's not. Um, shout out to our friend uh, Rob Orr, who gets to now watch him um, all the yeah. time. Um, the, the Phillies are also probably bringing back Odubel Herrera, which is weird. And Zach Wheeler might not be ready for opening day. That's Philly stuff. Freddie Freeman's They're accelerating. Still- They're really like like putting on the 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 Wilpon Mets suit, and it's fitting them very very well. Like this is just, I remember just the frustrations of of I think like moves like that, developments like that. As soon as you show up to spring training, like your best pitcher is is not there. Uh, you know, physically, like it's just. I don't know. I, 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 I feel bad for them, but like, I also don't, I don't, um, yeah, I don't. And then the Braves are about to lose Freddie Freeman because they don't know how to make an offer. Like potentially, um, potentially. I think we, don't, we don't know, uh, exactly. We don't know exactly. Yankees feel like they're still in Dodgers feel like they're very involved. Braves obviously feeling pretty involved. Um, would be funny if the Braves missed out on him and he goes elsewhere would also be really funny if like the Padres happen to be shopping uh, Eric Hosmer who maybe the Braves are yeah. like, yeah, he's good enough. That would yeah. be hysterical. They don't even get Olsen or Rizzo. They just get Eric Hosmer. That would be like, hysterical. That would be um, pretty good. Good for and us. Then, then the other couple of moves, Josh Harrison, a one-year deal to fill the White Sox bench. And Drelton Simmons um, joins uh, Marcus Stroman on the, on the north side of Chicago with the Cubs. Uh, Nelson Cruz is apparently going to DH for a National League team. That's the other part of the CBA we didn't mention. There's a universal DH. Um, we don't know which National League team is. There's like a list of teams that are apparently feel like they're finalists for him. And then another trade, uh, um, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa from the Rangers to the Twins in favor or uh, in exchange for Mitch Garver, the power hitting catcher, which opens up a starting catcher spot for uh, Ryan Jeffers. I'm sure Tom Hackmer is pleased with that. Um, and then there's the Mets moves. That's pretty much it in terms of the 
notable moves from around the league, unless you want to talk about Drew Verhagen signing a two-year, $5 million contract with the Cardinals or Daniel Zamora catching on with the Dodgers. Um, but for the Mets, the Mets have a starter and a reliever now. And so we've got Chris Bassett traded from the A's to the Mets uh, in exchange for JT Ginn and Adam Aller and both two right-handers, a former top draft pick in JT Ginn and a 27-year-old former Rule 5 pick in Adam Aller. And uh, speaking of Adam, Adam Ottavino is a New York Met on a one-year, $4 million deal with one year with a one million uh, incentives, which where do you want to start here, Jack? I think the Bassett thing, I mean, that's the most exciting thing because that's like, they're probably done with the rotation at this point. Most people I think would respond to the Ottavino deal uh, with the sentiment that something still needs to be done. Like maybe they need to still get at you know, Andrew Chafin or Colin McHugh and, and finish up that bullpen, or maybe they need to just, you know, pepper away and look for real depth. But when it comes to the pitching, I think like, they pretty much got it now with Bassett. They have a five-man rotation that doesn't include Tyler McGill. Um, it's Right now, it would be DeGrom, Scherzer, and then Bassett, your three, and then either Carrasco's your four or Walker's your four, and the other one would be your five, give or take. Like You have a lot more depth now than you did last year, and Bassett's a very good pitcher. I know you really, really liked him when we were talking deals with Oakland. I think Frankie Montas is better, but I also don't have any qualms with the package they gave up. Um, we were not big JT Ginn guys. Uh, Adam Aller probably would have been depth in this scenario, but they turned depth into like Chris Bassett, which is huge. Um, yeah. Bassett's um, intriguing in his own way, but yeah. I'm thrilled. I mean, of the guys to get from Oakland, I felt like Bassett was the, the most reasonable best deal. It was obviously Montes, but Montes has, is a little younger, has a year uh, extra of control. There was Sean Manaya, who is fine, but not my favorite. I don't really see the appeal too much. I don't think he's very good. And then there's Chris Bassett, who is going into his age 33 season and has just the one season left on his docket, but it's a reasonably priced season. And he's been pretty damn effective for like three years now with the A's. He's an all been an all-star um, and if you take out the month he missed last year after he got hit in the face by a line drive, he was really, really good as an Oakland athletic. And we're talking nine strikeouts uh, per nine. So about a strikeout per inning, um, 9.1, actually um, a hair over two walks per nine, a little under a home run per nine, um, barely over one in the whip column, an ERA in the low threes, a FIP in the, in the low to mid threes, uh, the, the stat cast numbers are all around the 75th to 85th percentile. Um, all the good ones that you want to see. Yeah. Um, not really a hard thrower. He'll, he'll get it up to 93, 94 with a little bit of sinking action and a little bit of cutter. And he mixes in this, uh, this slow curveball every once in a while um, in the lower 70s, sometimes even under 70 miles an hour. He's a fun guy to pitch with in the show in like a, in like a, uh, um, the Diamond Dynasty setup on the lower. Have like his own card. Yeah, he's got. He's like his uh his live series card is is fun occasionally when you're you're running mm -hmm. it back with uh um those battle royale teams where you draft a team and then go yeah. play because online you run up ninety three ninety four and then fool guys and get them flailing on that slow curveball. It's very fun. So that's that's why I'm familiar with him at least from that aspect, but. 
Um, he's effective. He's an all-star. Yeah. He's good. He's a good pitcher, man. He's, he's yeah. good. And he's on the good side of all those numbers too. Like Michael Waka and Rick Porcello were all-stars at one point, but that was like six, seven years ago. Like this is a guy who's only gotten better in the last three years. And also like, like, I think value wise, this is so much better than what the Blue Jays are giving Kikuchi and what the Giants, as good as Carlos Rodon may be, what they're giving him. I mean, the Giants are paying him $22 million a year. And even if the Giants are going to get great numbers out of him, which I probably expect them to because the Giants have figured out their pitching like like we didn't really give up anything for our year of Bassett um like yeah, and if we wanted to yeah. we could just dig back into that trove of prospects and give someone up you know for someone better like next year it's not like this is you know JD and Dom are still available if you need to deal one of them uh obviously the top four of your of your top prospects are still there um yeah, I was not a huge like JT Ginn guy. I mean, maybe he figures it out with Oakland. I know he already projects as like their best pitching prospect, but like I was more of a Matt Allen guy anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I don't understand anyone who values Ginn over Allen stuff wise, upside wise. I understand that Allen's been hurt and is still hurt. Um, I saw Ginn pitch. I don't know if Jack. I don't know if you ever made it to Brooklyn last season and, and got to catch him, but I saw JT Ginn pitch. I was not impressed. I understand that maybe a year removed um, from Tommy John, another year removed, he gets a little more velocity back, a little more movement back, maybe a little more command back. They say the command is the last thing to come back after Tommy John. But the, the JT Ginn that I saw flashed a plus slider. It was good, but he also got hit around um and exited that game in like the third inning and was 93 or so 92 93 with some sink but he really didn't seem to have any idea where it was going um and he was getting hit with it the fastball was getting hit and so while he flashed a plus slider I didn't see a whole lot else from Ginn um that that made him to be a top pitching prospect in my mind I get that he has the pedigree Mississippi State product first you know top round draft pick um before the Mets nabbed him in, in you know the second round um after he got hurt but I you know I just I was never super convinced yeah and when you yeah. actually get eyes on a guy even if this was a bad start he still showed off everything that he had mm-hmm. uh and I just you know when you see a guy you can make those kind of judgments on him a little bit easier that's why scouting exists so wasn't yeah. huge on that Adam Waller yeah, it was really good in AAA this year in 2021, but what can you reasonably expect out of him moving forward? He's not a piece of your franchise that you really need to keep around. He's 27 years old, um, and they did good to turn him into a valuable piece that they could turn yeah. around into a trade, having been a rule a minor league rule five pick. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I think from a player development standpoint, to see the Mets, you know, reach out for someone like Adam Aller when they did, and now turn him and a second round draft pick into Chris Bassett. Like, I think that that is in its own way, something to be kind of excited about. And I know that teams like Oakland and obviously with Sonny Gray, we see this, you know, in Cincinnati as well, there's this, uh, you know, priority uh, of getting salary off the books. Uh, If the prospects are great, it's like, it's great. But if they're not as the salary still comes off the books, um, but I, yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of, I'm still impressed that the, that, that uh, Billy Epler and Sandy Alderson were able to pull this off and, 
Uh, I mean, yeah, Bassett, man, that's, I mean, you look at where he ranks in ERA the last few years, especially like uh, the, the players that he ranks alongside since 2019, his ERA has, has been 331. That's 12th in all of baseball. Um, Jacob deGrom is first on that list. Max Scherzer is third. He's basically wedged between Zach Wheeler and Charlie Morton. Um, I'm, I mean, I don't really have anything bad to say at all about it. I think that I, w- I was happy when I heard that they were talking to the Reds about Tyler Molly before they went to Bassett because I thought yeah. that it also would have been perfectly fine. It seems like they're they're talking to the right people. And um, yeah, this is probably the first time in some time at least where I've, I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe since like the Lindor trade, honestly, where I'm like, they, they didn't really do anything wrong here. Everything checks out. Everything's still in place. It's a good deal. The team's a lot better. And I, I'm excited to see him pitch too, because it's really interesting that a guy who is pretty low in terms of velo and movement uh, can just only ever induce weak contact. I think that that's, I think that that's something that is going to be really interesting, especially with all the pitches that he has at his, you know, in his repertoire. Uh, yeah. True like, five pitch guy. Yeah. Two kinds of fastballs, including sinker and a cutter and then the slider, a changeup and the slow curveball. I mean, dude just misses uh, the barrel and um, he's, I think going to be a really important piece. People are like, Oh, he's your five guy now. No, this no. is their three guy. Yeah, this guy, I like him better than Taiwan and Carrasco. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, especially off of last year. I don't know how you can take look at what Bassett did and put him behind those two. And and that's not a knock on Carrasco and Walker. Like Bassett is really just that kind of dude. Um, And you look at what this does now for like the rest of your uh, pitching staff. I mean, that's really it's got such an important uh, impact on the pitching staff that it it lengthens it obviously now you have five consistent proven major leaguers as your one five guys um including two aces at the top an all-star at your three a former all-star at your four two former all-stars taiwan was an all-star last year at your four and five uh what it also does the effect it has is it it officially bumps tyler mcgill david peterson those more depthy younger-ish guys off the rotation entirely so long as everyone is healthy, that's the big primary concern. Everyone on this rotation is uh, old, except for Taiwan Walker, really. Everyone's 33 and older, with the exception of Taiwan, who's 29 and has his own injury history. Um, Bassett, age 33. Carrasco, age 34. DeGrom, age 33. Scherzer, age, what is he, 30, going into age 37 and 38? Yeah, yeah, I can check um, that. But it's, he, I think Scherzer's the oldest of them. Yeah, Scherzer is the oldest of them, but everyone else is in their mid-30s, um, with the exception of Walker, who is also just a concern health-wise, um, but remained fairly durable last year, which was a, a pleasant surprise. Uh, so you see how things can hold together before you have to turn to uh, McGill and Peterson and Yamamoto and, and whoever else is healthy at any given point yeah. in the starting rotation. Uh, but listen, this is a good place to be in at the start of spring training, the, the shortened spring, there's concerns about the ramp up for pitchers, um, and, and how that's going to affect pitchers. If pitchers are going to be more apt to get hurt, um, based on the ramp up, but this is what we're dealing with. We got to deal with it. If someone goes down, you have enough 
uh, depth with McGill and Peterson and even Trevor Williams and Yamamoto, um, then there you go. Yeah. I mean, we talked about like last year too, we talked about like how much depth they really had. Um, And it was, I think last year was probably more direly needed because Syndergaard and Carrasco were hurt as long as they were. Um, But honestly, I don't think they really had that much. Like as soon as those two went down, David Peterson got bumped into his four spot and Joey Lucchese became the five guy. And then after Jordan Yamamoto, you know, no one even knew who Tyler Amigo was at that point. Like it was like a black hole, really. Um, I know that's kind of revisionist history, but obviously they didn't get many results from Mike Montgomery or Jared Eikhoff or Corey Oswald or Franklin Kilame. Like they really, or Thomas Sapucky for that matter. I think that things are probably a little bit brighter with this group. Um, and also the other thing, I mean, we talk about bullpen. If, 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 if you're really going to commit to Tyler McGill in some way um, as a contributor on the big league roster, this is a perfect opportunity to make him your innings guy in the bullpen. Try and I think stretch him out the way that they have done Seth Lugo in the last few years, which worked really, really well. Um, yeah. I think that could be a really interesting role for him. Yeah. I don't know about you. I'm still in the boat where they, they need, I think they need one depth guy that they can go out and get like a Lucchese type. Um, yeah. Especially given that Lucchese's hurt uh, still with the Tommy John, but. Oh, right. Lucchese, I don't think is like much of a factor this year, but no, I I agree with you. I think, I think there's one more trade to be made in the Lucchese mold. Just a guy who can spot start if you need, can go to your bullpen if you need, but has options. Um, Just in case you have McGill or Peterson out in the pen or they're not doing well in AAA. Um, you've also got, I mean, also worth mentioning among that group of depth guys is like a Josh Walker, mm-hmm. um, Jose, is it Buto? Buto? Buto, yeah, Buto. Buto. Um, it's a fun, fun looking last name, not to be immature. Andrew Mitchell too. I mean, yeah, Eric there's Dorsey, like, yeah, there's these names. are more McGill mold guys. You know, they're not they're not like top prospects, but like if they are doing well in the minors and you call them up, like you you, you might get results. You know, you know, it it could be interesting. I do agree that they probably should get somebody else, but I think that in terms of like where that where that is in line with everything else, I think that's something that like if you if you were to go grab. Um, you know, a sort of Lucchese type. I'm trying to think of anyone who might be available right now who fits that, and I can't. Probably maybe someone who just gets like DFA'd who looks good, uh, and you pull them in. Um, I think even then, if you do that, but you don't figure out how the rest of this bullpen is going to look, um, I don't really know if like that's as constructive for this team. I think you have to start with finishing like the app, you know, like the, the, the confirmed active spots on your roster that probably need reinforcement. Um, McHugh also, I mean, you talk rotation and bullpen. He's somebody who, if you add to your bullpen and need him to open games for you uh, when you become shorthanded, that's something he could absolutely fill in nicely for that. He did that a lot with the Rays. He's been a starter most of his career. I mean, that's sort of killing two birds with one stone, but it's also like, it's Colin McHugh, who's a very good, very dirty pitcher. Um, oh, I, I, I want to make this very clear before we go into the reliever yeah. section of the podcast. I want Colin McHugh. Yeah. Back. Yeah. I think that he is like the pickup for the Mets right now outside of a left-hander um, who is going to help put this 
bullpen in this team over the top. I like Colin McHugh as a fit for this roster, and I completely agree with you. If you're a little low on arms on any given day and he's available, like really available, you can go to him for two right off the top of a game and shortens yeah. the game to seven innings. Yeah. Uh, and he's really, really effective. And I think that he's a fit. I He was my first choice for a right-handed reliever when I heard that the Mets had some interest in some uh, relievers on the market. Um, of the righties, obviously, I think Andrew Chafin would be a really solid fit from the left side, maybe a Daniel Norris probably hopefully not a brad hand i think we're done with I yeah think done with that um they don't seem to be done with it but yeah i know i am yeah uh, that's from the left side even amir garrett was probably mentioned a whole bunch in those tyler malley talks that you you referred to but from the right side there was McHugh, adam Ottavino, some other names Ottavino is the one they wound up with who's to say if they don't wind up with the McHugh too i believe that there was mutual interest there but Adovino is who we've got. Um, so why don't we talk about Adam Adovino a little bit? Yeah. Um, for $4 million, I think it's a great deal. Uh, I think it's – he's probably just the guy who does the innings that Jerry's Familia did. Um, he had some troubles in Boston. I mean, he's always been privy to walks. Uh, when you have really good stuff and you get a lot of strikeouts um, – you tend to get a lot of them by throwing things that aren't on the plate. And sometimes that leads to giving up walks. He didn't give up that many homers though. So that's how, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, strictly his inability to locate pitches. Um, but they're not what he was with the Yankees. I think most people, when they think of Adam Adovino, they think of the guy who pitched for the Yankees uh, two years ago, said he could strike Babe Ruth out 10 times out of 10. That aspect of the deal is very, very good for my brand. Just as an aside, um, I love having guys who believe that they can strike Babe Ruth out, but they think of somebody who had like a 190 ERA and uh, through unhittable sliders. Uh, they don't really think about the guy who's coming back uh, after a really bad second half with the Red Sox. Uh, there are things about this like that that could go wrong. And I think that uh, it's definitely not the only move the Mets should be making as high, as good as, as good as the potential is. That's, that's my stance on it. Yeah. And in, in, in not just a lefty here, they need another righty who can go high leverage innings. I think beyond it, the Edwin Diaz is and the um, Seth Lugo's of the world and Trevor Mays of the world. They probably need one more. And I think that you and I both agree that Colin McHugh is that guy in terms of Ottavino, He's interesting because he is not all that far removed from an elite reliever season, but the most recent Ottavino that we've had is not a very good Adam Ottavino is, is a, you know, he's going into his age 36 season coming off a year where he had an ERA and a FIP and up in the mid fours. Right. And a walk rate above five walks per nine, a strikeout rate above 10, yeah. but a walk rate above five. And that's what you're getting here. And the stat cast numbers are weird. Yeah. You look at that stat cast chart for him and you see a bunch of red, but then you see two categories that are very, very starkly blue. And right. blue is the lower side of that percentile um, range. And he, it, it, the percentile range is not good. Those two blue ones that they're are dark blue. They're very yeah. dark blue. They're roughly a lot of dark red and a lot of dark blue. I believe those are like, they're like sixth or seventh percentile. Both of the ones I'm talking yeah. about. And what they are is walk rate and chase rate, 
which is weird because usually guys who are plus stuff, who have good, good stuff like Adovino does, we, he's got that insane wipeout slider still. They're going to walk guys, you know, because their stuff moves all over the place that they're just going to, by nature of their, their stuff, walk guys. But the, the contrast is they're going to get a lot of guys to chase those breaking balls off the plate. And Adovino last year just wasn't getting the chases. Not, yeah. not nearly at the same rate as he had been accustomed to. And in such a way that he was, only, he was like sixth or seventh percentile, which is bad in chase rate. And it was leading to increased walk numbers. Because if you get him more neutral in terms of chase rate, in terms of percentile chase rate towards that 50th percentile mark, much more average. Right. And he's probably walking a one or two fewer guys per nine, which yeah. bumps his effectiveness up significantly. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's funny. I think watching Miguel Castro through most of the year has taught me a lot about like how a pitcher with really, really good stuff can have like a really jarring statistic like that. And I think what it really boils down to, um, and I draw off of Castro because we saw this on a game by game level with him. Like sometimes Miguel Castro would come into games, right. And he would throw a sinker and it would like go it would look like it would go seven inches across the plate. It looked disgusting, like a hundred miles per hour. Best contact you're getting is a broken bat, filthy pitch. And he throws it and it's, it's a thing of beauty, but then he'll throw like, you know, then they'll call for changeups and he doesn't have his changeup that day, you know? And like, he's walking guys at that point, or he's missing his spots. Um, I think Didi Gregorius took him deep, like at least three times during the season off the same changeup right over the plate. Like really what it comes down to is, you can have a really, really, really good slider like Adovino does, but if he, it's not playing off of anything, A, batters are going to know what's coming. They're going to anticipate it. And B, that other pitch that, you're, that you have to rely on um, that isn't as good is going to get beat up. And really, Adovino was working with a four-seam fastball this year that was just like, it was not viable um, compared to the slider. It wasn't hitting, he, he rarely hit his spots with it. It didn't get nearly as much movement as a sinker had in prior years, like with the Yankees. Um, you need the contrast. That's really the biggest thing. Um, when Miguel Castro had contrast uh, and, and hitters were flailing at things, it was obvious when he was on. I think you're, you're hedging your bets with Adovino in the same way. You're hoping that you can get a guy who can give you two pitches. Um, and if you don't get it, like you're just going to get a guy with a 560 ERA again. Like, mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where like you hope they have it right, but um, if they don't, you're, you're going to need more guys. Yeah, it's, it's the issue here is not that he gets hit around, really. The right. issue is that he's going to walk the ballpark um, and then give up a dinky single that's going to score two runs. Like That's the kind of the stuff we're dealing with. And when we're talking about Jerry Shamilia going you know, down to South Jersey, um, we're getting, like I feel like, the same kind of frustrating pitcher to watch with Ottavino, just that this stuff has always been there. This stuff is always going to be there, but he's just, he's not going to throw enough strikes for the fans to really enjoy watching him too much. He's a really good guy. He's a New York native. Um, And he's very popular with the media. They love talking to him and he's a, a very, very personable guy. And I think fans are going to like him in that regard. Um, But I think once we get to June, we'll have a pretty good understanding of whether Adam Ottavino is uh, going to be a fan favorite or not. I mean, listen, he is still pretty 
closely removed from a very, very good season. Uh, and what made him so good was he had three distinct planes of movement for his three pitches. He had the slider, which he was throwing almost half the time, which moved just took a sharp left turn. Um, he had a cutter that he threw that kind of was a, a midway point between the fastball and the slider and, and had a little extra velo and didn't quite move as much, but moved enough. Uh, and then he had the sinker, which moved in on righties instead of away from righties. And the, the really the dichotomy between the slider and the sinker um, was what kept hitters off balance um, that at any given point, the pitch that they're seeing come towards them could take a right turn towards them or a left turn away from them, um, which was what helped him so much really and made him so effective. And now he's kind of ditched the cutter. He's gone more from a sinker to a four seamer, um, which he's gotten some velocity back on it, but um, it hasn't been as effective really so much. And, and he's getting hit around a little bit more on it, but you know, even though he's 36 years old, the stuff is still pretty much there and relievers are weird and they're yeah. highly variant. And yeah, he put up a 421 ERA last year, but maybe he puts up a 241 ERA or, or, or something like this in, in a random 60 inning sample with the Mets. So yeah. you don't know what you're going to get here, but I, I agree. I think we're both on the same page that um, there has been a bit of a downward trend here, a pretty yeah. substantial one. And there needs to be some more bullpen insurance. Right. Um, ideally in the form of someone who's better than him. Yeah. I would say that he's, it's the verdict on Ottavino is that he's not washed, but he's just not decidedly good. Like I think when the Mets got Trevor May last off season, I was stoked because it was like, that's a guy with good stuff that is getting better um, going to a pitching coach. That's going to make him better. But it was like, there were no, I think reasons for me looking at Trevor may to be like, okay, this might go wrong with Ottavino. I think there is a chance that this goes kind of wrong. So you do need other guys. Um, they pretty much only have three spots, uh, left to fill because Diaz may Seth Lugo, uh, Miguel Castro, and now Ottavino make up those five. I would honestly, like, I know that the lefty thing is appealing, and I think Andrew Chafin is very good. Like if they get Andrew Chafin, that's fine. But let's say they miss Chafin. If they move McGill to the bullpen um, and sign McHugh, um, I'm fine with like that third guy uh, being an effective righty who can pitch an inning uh, as opposed to like the next best lefty, which would probably be like what, like either Brad Hand or Tony Watson. I'm not super, I think like I don't live or die by lefty righty as much I think right now the priority needs to be maybe you get one more uh or maybe I mean if you see enough in Drew Smith he becomes that inning guy that you give that spot to and the other two uh I say inning guy rather than innings guys he gets the inning McGill and McHugh get innings so to speak like that would be a fine allocation of the last three spots to me at least uh if you can't yeah. get Chafin but I, I yeah I'm also in agreement with you there that I'm less concerned about how you like the handedness of the spot that you know, of the spots that you fill, like just because you don't have a lefty in your bullpen doesn't mean that you have to go and sign two lefties right now. Um, ideally you go and get the best lefty available in Andrew Chafin. But if that's not an option for you, then there's other avenues to fill this. And, and it's, more so a matter of effectiveness against left-handers than about handedness. 
because you can get lefties who just can't get lefties out occasionally and you can get righties who they are kryptonite for left-handed hitters um and i'm not i don't have this this splits in front of me i believe drew smith to be pretty good against lefties because he's got that little cutter thing that moves in on their hands but um i'd have to check that yeah mm -hmm. but that's that's what we're talking about is you know i don't have these stats to reference in front of me right now but if we're going to fill those spots with right-handed pitchers, just make sure that there's a good mix of righties in there yeah. uh, who can be crossover guys who can get both right-handers and left-handers out, or especially guys who are just really good against left-handed hitters yeah. is what we're talking about here. Right. I would say the prime example of like the righty who can pitch lefties really well, who was on the market was Jesse Chavez, but he just got off of it. That's somebody who with his cutter is, is sort of impossible to handle. Kenley Jansen is still kind of there. Obviously that's like, that commands a lot of money, but I didn't even realize that like he is still available technically. Um, uh, not, not a huge, uh, yeah. not huge on that, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, like there are some fans who are like, the Mets still need a closer. They still need a closer. I'm not necessarily. Closer's outdated. Closer's an outdated concept, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that could be Edwin, whatever, could be uh, some some May and some Lugo going in there too. It, it's a matter of who's available, and it's a matter of uh, the um, effectiveness of, of who's coming up to the plate that inning. Yeah, yeah. I, I I would think just get the best guys you can with like the money that you have left. I know that's a very controversial idea to just you know sign the best guys that you can, but um that's that's the hill I'm dying on really I think that yeah I mean even if that guy ends up being like Heath Hembry you know someone who has like some potential like just hedge hedge a couple uh you know small time guys like that if you need to I really do think that like Ottavino can't be like an eighth inning guy right now if we get to a point where he's pitching eighth innings he's either gone, he's either been really, really effective or something has gone really, really wrong. And I don't think there's really an in-between. Um, I agree. I agree. Which uh, is why, which is why I think that they need a, a McHugh or a Ryan Tapera. Yeah. Someone in there um, yeah. uh, turning a JD Davis into a, a half decent reliever mm-hmm. um, somewhere along the line. We'll yes. Yeah, you're out of retirement, et cetera. Yeah. You know. Well, uh, we'll see how that goes. Anyways. I mean, Nothing has broken since we've been set to record, as far as I can tell. No, nothing. I've been checking too, which thank God. I mean, I'm just that only means something's going to come out at like you know in five hours. But yeah, it's only it's only seven p.m. on Sunday right now as we're recording this, and this is going to go out. You know, this is going to be posted in roughly twelve hours, so still got some time before you know we you know this episode goes out that makes us look like idiots um, as usual. But yeah, I mean. That's uh, that's the state of baseball right now is that it's back and uh, the Mets have made a couple of moves and there's still work to be done, even though Billy Epler says that there's no plans to acquire a bat right now, even though like a Kyle Schwarber fixes a lot of holes on this team mm-hmm. offensively and uh, fourth outfielder type two, they can get maybe a swing a trade for another, you know, a more offensively minded catcher if they can. I don't know. That's just wishful thinking. There's still moves to be made here and there's still, um, three and a half weeks before opening day games start on Friday, right? Yes. Friday. They start. Uh, I don't know if that's the Mets or if that's major league. I need to check that, but they are coming and they're coming. I think the, the Mets first game is either Friday or Saturday, Saturday. Um, it's Saturday, but it's at Washington. 
Uh, so I don't know if it will be televised. Sunday, they have a game at home against the Cardinals at 110. So I will be watching that very closely. They don't have a pitcher set for that date yet. Yeah, that's mostly it's going to be whoever's ready enough to go for an inning or two. Uh, that's baseball right now. And, and we, we have gotten to talk about baseball for the first time in months. Yeah. Like real baseball stuff, which is awesome. And we get to talk about games yeah. next week. We can talk about the first game next week, too. We can just dissect all that. We can get really, really mad that, like, you know, um, like Felix Pena or something, like, couldn't field a bunt. I'm trying to remember, like, the other depth guys that they've got. Forgot that they shine Felix Pena, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's going to be fun, though. Shall we remember some guys? Let's remember some guys. Um, I think I've got a pretty good one in the tank, so I'm going to let you go first. Okay, you know, let me go first. Uh, okay, I will remember – Jason Phillips, uh, ah, kind of a guy, but I was just kind of feeling like it. I don't know. Um, you know, he's got glasses. Uh, yeah, he was just kind of like a guy. He was like along the same era as like Ty Wigginton and uh, like Kazmatsui, that, that era. Not a very good team, and he didn't last like all that long, but um, – Trying to remember who they traded him for. I might have to look this up. But yeah, he did wear glasses. He was traded from the Mets to the Dodgers in a mid-March 2005. Oh, for Kazuhisa Ishii. Yes. Another guy who, geez, yeah, Ishii started a lot of games for them that year. I'm looking at this now. And yeah, then he never pitched in baseball again. Made uh, made 19 appearances, 16 starts for the 05 Mets. Yeah. Oh, Phillips was a guy that they, I think, grew themselves. He was a prospect. Yeah, 24th round draft pick. And he could kind of hit. I don't remember if he could hit. He was a first baseman who also would catch, like, which we haven't had, like, with regularity in a really long time. Uh, he, had, he had one good season. One yeah. good 450 plate appearance sample in 2003, yeah. in which he OPS 815 with a 115 OPS plus, and hit 298 with 11 homers. Mm-hmm. And then that's the like, following year, it was just like rough. You know, yeah, catchers be like that. Catchers, uh, first baseman should not be like that. It was weird because yeah, he was like their catcher who could play first base, while Mike Piazza was their catcher who like couldn't really catch anymore. They seemed kind of confused as an organization as to how they were going to take care of that. And they ended up just kind of like rotating between the two of them, if, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. yeah. Um, lifetime negative 1.7 war in 1,300 play appearances. Good on you, Jason Phillips. This, that's our war, right? Yeah. Yeah, baseball reference war. Which yeah. I know we like Fangraphs war more generally. Well, no, that's just how you know that as a catcher, he 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 couldn't hack it. You know, like the the R war is just super skewed for defense, so it just kind of that's just you know that's that's how it that's how it be. Jason so Phillips. for my guy, wait, this is fun. Hold on a second, I picked a guy with the exact same R war. That's fun. No way. Ha! One negative one point seven R war career. Okay, so. Big athletics influence on the Mets now. Yes. Chris Bassett, Starling Marte, Mark Hanna. Uh, got me thinking about that connection, the athletics, if you will. I saw that 
floating yeah. around the online. Um, I was thinking about players who played for both the Mets and A's, and I found a pretty good one in the form of left-handed pitcher Dana Eveland. He had a negative – he was good with the Mets, no? He was good with the Mets for one year. I don't know how, how does that happen. 2014, 30 appearances, he had a 2.63 ERA in 27 and a third innings with 27 strikeouts. Damn. That was effective for the Mets. Yeah. And then he was not effective in 2015 for the Braves or 2016 for the Rays. This is so weird. 2016 for the Rays, 33 games, uh, nine ERA. Hard nine. How many innings? 23. So he was like a loogie, like a firm loogie. That's a lot of innings, though, to get away with a nine ERA. That's like. There's no way he had a 90 ERA the entire time. Like some, I, they must have I had have a really, imagine, really bad day. I have to imagine his batter to batter um, stats were like a lot better in that he would come in loogie style yeah. and like walk one of his batters, and then that guy would score on someone else's ledger, and he would get charged with the run. Yeah. But Danny even played for like a bunch of teams: Brewers, yeah. Diamondbacks, two years with the A's, Blue Jays, Pirates. Dodgers, Orioles, Mets, Braves, Rays from 05 to 2016, a nice little 11 year career in which he, which is it, he, 11 years um, in which he appeared in games, but only 187 games that he appeared in. Yeah. Well, well traveled, I guess, really. Yeah. Those miles must have been really good. And um, his, uh, his biggest stop was with the A's. Um, that of the Brewers where he started, but in the, with the A's in 2008, he started 29 games mm-hmm. and was perfectly average 99 with a 434 ERA. Yeah, that's, that sounds about, that sounds about right, man. I didn't even realize that we were becoming the athletics as quickly as we did, but like, yeah, it's like we became the 2021 Mets, like became the angels. And then the 2021 A's became the Mets, which I think looks good on us. It looks good for us that like, you know, we're taking Oakland Athletics and, 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 you know, the Angels are the guys taking our guys. Not to say that, like, Aaron Luke won't be good next year, but I think we – I think we'll probably be good. Kind of an old team, though, that we have. This is also another thing. Like A little bit of an older team. Yeah. But we'll see. Hopefully we don't have to look too much into that. Yeah. Hopefully we'll just win one, you know? Yeah. At least we know we'll play our, one. Let's, uh, let's get our ring and then uh... – and then we worry about the age later on. Yeah. 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 How about, how, how's that for an episode? Episode 72 of the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Um, anything else to add for the good of the cause? Uh, baseball back. Baseball back. Baseball back. Baseball Very back. back. So back, in fact, that baseball back. Baseball back. Yes. Then that's an episode. Jack Hendon, Sam Lebowitz. This was episode 72. If you want to go back and watch, listen to some other ones, go ahead. That would be cool too. Um, but I think we'll be back on the, the weekly rotation here for the most part now that we've got things to talk about, which means uh, Mets fans, we'll see you next week. And for now, Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening. Thank you.